Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting-edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Welcome to the podcast. Today, my host is Bobby Klink of Klink LLC. Bobby's an intellectual property attorney who helps entrepreneurs, startups, and innovators harness the power of their intellectual property rights and reduce exposure to lawsuits or brand challenges in the marketplace. He is the author of the Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook and the Patent Litigation Primer. He has his graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, We're excited to have you here. So let's go back in time. What made you want to become a lawyer? Well, it's, it's a funny, well, I don't know if it's a funny story. It um, goes back to high school. In high school, I started um, doing public speaking events. So I started doing debate, which led me to mock trial, which led me to uh, a, a competition that my high school did. It's a national competition called the, the We the People Con- uh, competition, which is about the U.S. Constitution. And I did all of those things, fell in love fell in love with the law, fell in love with what I thought was the practice of law, which was mock trial, which of course is very little of what you actually do as a lawyer. But um, that's what got me started. And that's what first got me interested in the law. All right. And then that got you into law. How'd that send you to Harvard? <laughs> well, it sent me to Harvard because I, I got in. Um, so I, I, I started my, or I did my undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Texas, where I'm from, um, the state of Texas, about 300 miles south of that uh, of Austin. And I uh, did well in school. I also did well on the LSAT, which is the the test you take to get into law school. And so I applied, and and Harvard accepted me, and. Uh, I very much took the approach of why wouldn't you go there because it uh, has this very good name, a very good reputation, obviously. And so uh, went up there for um, an admitted student's day, fell in love, and ended up there for school. And then uh, talk a little bit about your career journey after graduating Harvard. Yeah, so my career journey after that has been um, a winding road, to say the least. I started, when I went to law school, I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer, the ones in the courtroom doing all those things. And again, that was from my mock trial days and those types of um, experiences. And then you get to law school and you start learning, at least a place like Harvard, you start learning kind of the very abstract ideas about the law. You learn about the legal concepts. And it tends to make you think in these higher principles. And so that made me think I wanted to be an appellate lawyer, which is the the lawyer who handles a case after it's been decided at the trial court level, generally dealing with these uh, legal questions and and very um, high level types of legal disputes. So that led me to Washington, D.C., where I still live, but that's where most of the big firms have their appellate practices. So I started out at a very big firm. I think probably have about 2,000 lawyers across the U.S. and and internationally representing very big clients, types of companies that you've heard of, types of companies whose products you probably buy every day and just, you know, don't uh, think twice about it. 
But very quickly, I realized I actually didn't want to be an appellate lawyer. I think literally within about six months, I'd figured that out because as an appellate lawyer, you sit in an office, you read, write, and think, and that's it. You don't have to talk to anybody. There's no need, no reason to. And I didn't find that fulfilling. But also, I found that I was, in fact, inheriting problems and, and screw-ups from the person who'd handled the case before me. And so that was not an ideal situation in my mind. So I decided at that point I wanted to go back to being, it wasn't a trial lawyer, but uh, the person who handled the case during the uh, initial phase. I transitioned to a slightly smaller firm, uh, the firm where um, my original mentor was actually now Justice Neil Gorsuch, but he was a, a lawyer there at the time. We still handled cases on behalf of big companies, uh, huge disputes. And so it was uh, the, the same type of work, not related to what I do now in any way, uh, but interesting experience. So between those two firms, I spent about five years of my formative years as a lawyer working on behalf of established firms doing work for big companies. I, I saw, though, that at the end of the day, the only way to actually get more experience was to go somewhere else. And I took what is an actually seems like a weird detour, but is a common detour for lawyers at these types of firms. I went and became a federal prosecutor and handled criminal cases for three years down in Fort Worth. And the reason was that it gave me the opportunity to get in the courtroom every day of my life, you know, stand up before a judge and I'm the one who has to make the arguments. I'm the one who has to carry the day. And so that was, uh, that was three years of my life there, um, and I, I decided I wanted to come back to Washington, so I was, after that, was trying to decide what to do, and I, I had an offer to go back to the bigger firm I was at, but I found this little entrepreneurial firm with three lawyers that had started only a couple of years before, and that's when I took the jump to become an entrepreneur, uh, joined this small firm. Uh, the first case I handled there was a patent matter that they didn't really know much about. So they just kind of handed it to me, said, here you go, handle this. <laughs> I did. And so now for the last seven years of my life, I've essentially been an intellectual property lawyer pretty much full time since then. So that's kind of the career arc. And then I started my own firm uh, just over three years ago. That is an absolutely incredible journey. So uh, talk a little bit about the type of clients that you're serving now. Well, so now I, I kind of have two parts to my practice. Um, part of it is still handling lawsuits, which in those cases, I tend to either represent a, an inventor or a pretty big company because lawsuits are expensive. So those aren't the types of things that are generally small businesses find themselves in. The other side of my business, though, is advising and helping uh, entrepreneurs. So basically, it can be anywhere from, you know, an individual entrepreneur who has a, a you know good business going all the way up to a company, small uh, size, mainly in, in the startup phase. And I help them develop a strategy for their intellectual property. I help them basically come up with an idea of, you know, what route are we going to go down to maximize the value of the intellectual property we're creating and to avoid stepping on other people's rights to avoid getting sued in the first place. So that's what I'm doing now. And that's, that's the bulk of what I'm uh, doing these days. What are some of the biggest mistakes you are finding entrepreneurs are making when it comes to their IP strategy? So there's a lot. <laughs> and, and, and I have to start with a mistake that's not even specifically IP related, but it's one of the biggest mistakes I see. And it's actually a mistake I made at my last firm when I joined them. And that's not getting your agreements in writing. Um, 
too many entrepreneurs and small businesses are operating as what are called de facto partnerships. It's two people working together with no written agreement that says who has what responsibility, who owns what, or anything of the sort. And so the result is that you end up potentially getting into a big, huge fight four or five years down the road, and there's no written document, so it gets very expensive because it's a he said, he said uh, argument about what the deal was, and so that means it's going to have to proceed through the court system, and you're going to have to pay people like me hundreds of thousands of dollars likely between the two parties. So the first piece of advice I would say is get your agreements in writing. If you're in business with someone else, you have to have a partnership agreement or operating agreement for your business. You also need to make sure that um, you know, there's agreements with your employees so that it's clear they're an employee, not an owner of the business. So that's formative issues. On IP issues, there's some things that are related to that. Most people don't re realize that you have to have a written agreement transferring any federal uh, intellectual property. So if you have a, an invention, you have to assign it in writing. You can't do it verbally. So if you're a founder of a company and you haven't done that, guess what? You still own it. The company doesn't own it. So if, if you're in business with someone who came up with an idea and that's the, the pivotal part of your business and they haven't signed a written agreement giving it to the business, guess what? They still own it and they can leave any time and take that pro intellectual property with them. So that's one of the big mistakes. Another big mistake has to do with trademarks, which is uh, has to do with branding, slogans, things like that. A lot of entrepreneurs and startups and small businesses will spend a ton of time coming up with the perfect name for their business. They spend the time thinking about it, spitballing it, testing it, doing God knows what to make sure they have the right name. And then they don't do the, the simple step of making sure no one else is already using the name. And so that, that's basically running a trademark clearance is what you need to do. And if you don't do that, the problem is you may spend a couple of years building that brand, get it to the point that it's successful, and then someone's going to come out of the woodwork and say, guess what? I have a trademark on this name. You can't use it anymore. So that is one of the pivotal mistakes people make. There are some smaller things people do, like on podcasts, you will hear people playing uh, songs that everyone's heard of. And I feel quite certain they have not bought the copyright license to actually use that on their podcast. So that's another example. But that translates to any kind of business. You have to make sure you have the license to any pictures on your website, et cetera. So those are some of the big ones. But I could go on and on talking about it. There's lots of little things that can happen as well. Sure. So where do we start? So we own a business. Um, obviously, it's different if you're a startup. Let's say we own an existing business and it's not product-based. Let's say it's service-based. Okay. Um, what type of intellectual property issues might we encounter there are things to watch out for because there isn't a physical product that's patented that's involved. Okay. Well, so let, let's start maybe by just talking about what the different kinds of intellectual property are. Yeah, so you, that would be you, helpful. You mentioned patents and a patent is a, a it's literally a piece of paper that's issued by the government uh, in the U.S., the United States Patent and Trademark Office that gives you the exclusive right to use, make, sell, et cetera, an invention for a certain period of time. And you mentioned it, that's often a product base, but it could be a system as well. So if you have a system of doing something that's different, you can get a patent on that. Although those are getting harder and harder to get. 
the second area we, we touched on briefly, and that's trademark. And so a trademark is, again, um, you get some rights initially just by using your name, your brand, your logo, a slogan, but you can also register it with the federal government, which will get you additional protections. But a trademark is anything that identifies the source of a good or service. So just think your name, your logo, and then just do it, for example, by Nike. That is a trademark slogan that everyone knows that associates with the brand. The next area is copyright, which again, I mentioned briefly, and that's protection that attaches to any creative work. So a movie is an obvious example, but so is a song. But then, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're writing white papers, guess what? Those are copyrighted material. Your website is copyrighted material, assuming that it has some level of creativity. And here, creativity doesn't necessarily mean artistic creativity. It just means it's not just a compilation, an easily compiled piece of information. So a phone book, for example, the information can't be copyrighted. The layout can, but the information can't. And then the final area, and, and this is the area that I refer to as the Rodney Dangerfield of intellectual property because it doesn't get no respect, and that's trade secrets. And for many entrepreneurs, it's actually the most important area. A trade secret, a trade secret law protects any valuable confidential information that you take reasonable steps to protect. The, the classic example is the Coca-Cola formula. So the formula for Coke is a trade secret that's been kept for over 100 years. As I understand it, the only written down copies are in a bank vault in Atlanta, and fewer than five people even know the entire formula. So it's, it's, goes to, they go to great lengths to protect it. You don't have to go that far if you're a typical entrepreneur. And if you're a typical entrepreneur, what are your trade secrets? Well, your customer list, your CRM database, all of those things are trade secrets. If you have a, a method, a confidential method of doing something inside your business to provide the service that is not generally known, that's a trade secret so long as you take steps to protect it. And this is another one of those mistakes people make because you have to have agreements with your employees and contractors that say they can't use that information except for your business. Because if you don't, you potentially lose the protection. So, so those are the issues. Uh, and you asked generally, how do you start? Well, I propose doing what's called an IP audit, which is basically you kind of create a catalog of all of your potentially protectable assets. And again, this is a, a process of just going through and saying, do I have any inventions? I mean, it, it can be broadly think, do I have any? Do I have any slogans? Do I have any names? Do I have any brands? And you list all of these things out kind of in all those categories. And then you also rank how they, important they are to your business and what steps have you taken to protect them. Then you start to do kind of like a triage and figure out what's the most important issue you need to be dealing with right now. And you're going to have a limited budget, so you're going to have to make choices. You're going to have to say, well, I'm, I'm just going to let this one go because I don't have the money to protect it. But by creating a complete list and kind of ranking it, you're able to actually make coherent decisions rather than doing kind of ad hoc, oh, I'm going to protect this, I'm going to, I'm going to protect this. And then when you come to the most important issue, all of a sudden, maybe you don't have any money left in your budget. So that's the first part. The second part is making sure you have procedures in place to ensure you're not stepping on other people's rights. So doing a trademark clearance, like I mentioned, uh, making sure you license your copyright, the material, et cetera. Really, really helpful. Give us an example of, let's say, a horror story or two of a client who came to you when it was all wrong and what happened then. Okay, well, and again, so the, what happens is if, if if you don't do the work up front, the horror story can come in a couple of ways. 
going back to the written agreement issue, let me give you an example where I had a client come to me. They, it was a company that had acquired the rights in a patent. Um, and this was years after the invention, I think 10 to 15 years after the patent was applied for that the, the patent had been kind of gone through multiple hands because of uh, various bankruptcies and come to find out that there was no record of the original inventors ever having signed written assignment agreements and no one could find that. So here we are 15 years after the fact as kind of a third party having to go out and try to find those inventors. And again, you know, the, the company said, Hey, they had, they had an obligation to assign it to us, but we don't have the documents. So we had to go to find these people, try to convince them to assign the rights again, which that process in and of itself is hard to do. But then on top of that, um, when all of a sudden they find out that it has value, they are going to start saying, well, what's in it for me? And you may have to give them some money. So that's an example of the type of thing that can happen in a, in a patent context in a trademark. Let me, again, we kind of touched on it briefly, but I'll give you an example, not of one of my clients, but I'm a, a craft beer nerd. And so I'll give you an example of something that happened around here in Washington, DC. We had uh, our first craft brewery was called DC Brow. And they had three flagship beers, including one called The Citizen. A competing small microbrewery started up about uh, eight miles north in one of the first suburbs. And they announced that they were launching as Citizen Brewing Company. Uh-oh. Not having thought, and again, I, it escapes me because they clearly would have known about it. But so the, the DC, DC Brow uh, folks sent a cease and desist letter and Luckily, there was, a, in that case, a pretty happy ending. This, uh, instead of being Citizen Brewing, they changed it to Denizen Brewing, and they're still a successful company. So, you know, but you can imagine that if it were someone not so close, you might have actually yeah. launched your brand and spent a bunch more money. And so th those are some of the horror stories that can come up. Not having written agreements, I could tell you all kinds of horror stories. Um, a, a very famous case is Adam Carolla and his podcast, where he started a podcast with a longtime friend, uh, then fired him at some point, and there was a dispute about whether this was his friend was just an employee or an owner. And they went all the way into trial and then settled uh, midway through the trial. And I can't say for sure, but I suspect that between the two of them, they probably spent about a million dollars in attorney's fees wow. because there was no written agreement. So that, that's the kind of thing that can happen. That, that's then why we need people like you. Um, for folks who are interested in copies of the Entrepreneur's IP Handbook and the other resources you, you have written, uh, what is the best way for them to get a hold of those? Look, I mean, if you want a physical copy, you can buy it on Amazon or anywhere else. But I give away PDFs of both books on my website. Um, I don't try to make a living selling books about intellectual property. That would be a hard way, I think, to make a living. I have a, a, a free e-course that people can take where they will get a copy of the Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook, uh, a four-day kind of uh, series of courses about how to go about doing an IP plan for your business and then some of the checklists, et cetera, that we would use in the process internally with our clients. Uh, and you can get that at, on my website at clinkllc.com forward slash podcast. And, and clink is K-L-I-N-C-K. So it's K-L-I-N-C-K-L-L-C.com forward slash podcast. Okay. We will send everyone to clinkllc.com forward slash podcast. Fascinating interview, incredible stuff. Anything you want to share that I didn't think to ask? 
Well, I think what I would say is the big piece of advice I give to people is I think a lot of people are afraid to deal with this because they think it has to be expensive and they have to go out and hire someone like me. And what I would say is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It's better to be doing something, even if it's not as good as it could be, than to be doing nothing. And so if you'll just start taking action, again, just, just start reading if that's all you can afford is a book and, and start thinking about these issues and taking action. And then there are a lot of relatively cheap ways to actually execute. For example, I don't have people pay me to get a trademark. We can do that much cheaper by outsourcing it to someone else. But you know, just take action and don't let the cost scare you. There are ways to do this and to bootstrap if you're not yet to the point that you can afford it. Okay. Great resources. Awesome interview. Again, everyone go to clinkllc.com slash podcast. We've been here talking with Bobby Clink of Clink LLC. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this special productivity series of the Direct Response Marketing Podcast. I've interviewed hundreds of the most successful entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and CEOs all over the world. And I want to share with you one of the biggest ways I've discovered to triple your productivity that I've learned from these amazing people. Even better, I'll pay you $500 to test drive it. Just go to takethe500challenge.com. That's www.takethe500challenge.com to learn more. Thanks so much for listening. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.